Well, hey everyone, thanks for checking out this message from Journey Church. These resources are so awesome to have when you're out in nature like we are and you gotta go be outside on these nice days. However, we want you to know that there is nothing better than true fellowship with believers and live worship with your fellow Christians. So be sure to use this message only in conjunction with getting fed in a community of believers. Hey, we also want you to get connected with us, so be sure to text the word CONNECT to 307-271-9160 so that you can stay in the loop with everything happening at Journey Church and get notifications about upcoming events. Hey, we pray that this message encourages you and inspires you as you continue this life on your walk with Jesus. What a fantastic morning it has been. We This is our third service today. All three services have been very full and uh, just a great chance to be able to worship together about the resurrection of our Lord. It's been, uh, been a privilege to be able to do this today, to celebrate on this Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday. Really appreciate the band and all of the effort that they have put in uh, to be able to do that three times. And I'm thankful that their voices are holding up through all of that. Um, there was a pastor and a taxicab driver that both happened to die on the same exact day and wound up at the gates of heaven. Now, this pastor was a prominent pastor who had preached many, many times over the course of his life. This taxicab driver obviously drove a taxicab. As they were met at the gates of heaven by the angel, the angel said, let me show you to your new accommodations. Would you please follow me? They first came upon a house that was a large, large mansion and full of all kinds of amenities, an Olympic-sized swimming pool, and just an incredible place. And the angel turned to the taxi cab driver and said, this is your home. Enjoy. He was just overwhelmed. Wow, thank you so much. Next, he led the pastor to the house that the pastor was going to have. And this house was not like the first house. This house was a small little shack with a old TV set and a set of twin beds in it. And the pastor looked at the angel and said, uh, uh, what's, what's this all about? Uh, I think you got it confused. Did you give my house to the taxi cab driver? Am I getting his house? I mean, I worked for God all of my life. I preached all kinds of messages. And the angel looked at the pastor and said, yes, but during your messages, especially during your Easter message, you put people to sleep. Whereas every time the people rode with the taxi cab driver, they prayed fervently. He deserves it a lot more than you do. Now, that's not the way heaven works, just so you know. Don't think that is theology. But I'm going to try my best not to put you to sleep here today. It's a little bit shorter message, I hope, today, as I share with you from God's Word. I don't know if you remember the name. You probably would if you remember back to history or <clears throat> school days. Maybe you wouldn't remember the name. But in the early 1900s, there was a man who rose to power in Russia. His name was Nikolai Ivanovich Bukharin. And Nikolai Ivanovich Bukharin was a notorious atheist. He was a leader in the Communist Party, very much part of the Bolshevik Revolution that happened in, the 19, in 1917. He was leading in that country, and he would use his prominence and use his influence to go around the country and speak against Christianity. He would share all kinds of things as to why Christianity was untrue. He would share insult 
after insult, argument after argument, trying to convince people that they should not believe in a God. Well, he did that over the course of the, the year in the whole country. He came to one particular community, one particular village, and he came into that village and invited all the village there, and he began to speak to them and tell them again why Christianity was false, why it was wrong, why you should not believe this. He was insulting Christianity, arguing against it. Spent about an hour doing so. At the end of the hour, the audience looked at him stunned in silence, not knowing how how to respond. He said after his talk, do you, do any of you have questions? One little old man from the audience made his way to the front, stood at the podium that Bukharin had been speaking from, looked at the audience and said just three simple words, Christ is risen, to which the entire audience with thunderous response said, he is risen indeed. And that was the answer to this charge of atheism. I want to try that for us today because it's one of the common things in the church world. And so today I just want to say he is risen, Christ is risen. And I'd like you to respond in thunderous response, he is risen indeed. Let's try this together. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. is phenomenal. That is a thunderous response, and I appreciate that. I don't know if it was quite as good as second service, but it was really, really close to second service. Maybe it was better. We can hope that it was better. Today, what I want to talk to you about is the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to look at the story of the resurrection, and I want to look at one little nuance from the story that is powerful. And I believe if you let it, it will speak and minister to your heart today. Before we get into this, I want to pray and ask for God to bless our time. So would you pray with me, please? Father, we want to come before you to hear from you. This is your time. We are your people, and we are here to worship you and to hear from you. I don't want any attention or, or any of the spotlight to be on me, Lord. I want it to all be on you. You are the reason we gather. It is your resurrection, the risen Christ that we are here to worship. Death could not defeat you. Death will not defeat us. Those who trust in you will be with you for all eternity. And we thank you for that. Lord, as we share your word today and we look at your word, speak to our hearts. I believe there are maybe one, maybe more people in this room that were even reluctant, not wanting to come to church today. I believe that there are people in this room, Lord, that today are struggling with feeling like they're not good enough, feeling worthless, feeling unforgivable, feeling maybe like they have committed the unpardonable sin. And I pray today that you would speak to that heart, that person, and that you would help us to hear the hope that we need to have in you. Be with us now, Lord, as we open your word and study your word and speak to us in only the way that you can. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to look at the resurrection, the story of the resurrection. And I want to look in today at Mark, at the end of chapter 15 of the book of Mark. I'm going to read from the New King James Version. We're going to look at verses 42 through 47, and then we'll look at the first eight verses of Mark chapter 16. So 15 and 16, about um, 13 verses in total. And I want to show you this nuance of the story that I believe is very spectacular. In fact, this little nuance of the story is only found in one of the Gospels. It's only only in the gospel of Mark. It's not in Matthew or Luke or John. And I believe it's in there for a specific reason. And I want you to see that with me here today. Let's read this. Here's what it says. 
Now, let me set the stage. Jesus had been crucified on the cross. He had just died on the cross. His body is still hanging on the cross. And from that point, this is where we pick up the story. Now, when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. Now, on the Sabbath day, on Passover, on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, all of these things tie together, the Feast of First Fruits, all of that, you cannot do any, um, any touching of a dead body. So all of the things that are happening with the body of Jesus are taking place in the little windows they have around the Sabbath and around these feasts. So it was the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a prominent council member, a very rich man, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. That means he was a follower of Jesus. He came and he took courage and he went to Pilate, who had pronounced the sentence over Jesus. And he asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that Jesus was already dead. Now, why would he marvel that he was already dead? It was the same day. Well, because a crucifixion victim would not die the same day. They would live for days until they finally could not live any longer. So something amazing happened. Jesus died. He had to die on that day because that day was the Passover day. And the Passover was the picture of our own salvation. He had to die on that day. So Pilate was amazed. He's like, well, he, what do you mean he's already dead? You want his body? Is he dead? Is he really dead? So what did he do? Well, he asked the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. The centurion went to figure this out. So he went and he found out from the centurion that he, and he found out that he was dead. So he granted Joseph the body of Jesus. Then he brought, or he bought fine linen. He took him down off the cross and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Now let me tell you a little of what's going on in this scene. In that day, when a body was, when a person died and they had the body, they did not do what we would do in our society. They did not cremate the body. They did not, uh, they did not embalm the body. What they would do is they would lay the body in a tomb. They would lay the body in the tomb and then they would treat that body with all kinds of different spices and that would cause decay or help in the decaying process. They would put a rock over the tomb entrance. They would let the body decay and then after a certain period of time, they would come back, collect all of the bones, put the bones in a very small little box called an ossuary box and then bury that separately. So it only took up a small little footprint compared to what a large uh, cemetery would be today. So that's what's happening. They took the body of Jesus off the cross, put him in a tomb, and rolled a, a stone over so that they could begin the decaying process. Now, because it was the Sabbath and because it was Passover, they couldn't treat the body and put the spices on to help in the decaying process. That's going to come later because their own law prevented them from being able to do so on those particular days. So they, he's laying in the tomb. Then on the first day that they could, which was the first day of the week, which was Sunday, it says, when the Sabbath was passed, this would be Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint the body and treat the body. 
Very early in the morning, that would be dawn, on the first day of the week, that Sunday, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, you know what, we made a mistake. We don't have anybody that's going to roll the stone away for us. How, who will roll the stone away from the door of the tomb for us? It's really heavy. Now, the stone was not like a boulder like you would see in, in makeshift plays or whatever uh, displays that you see today. The stone would have been a large, round, circular uh, stone piece that would look like a wheel probably about six inches to a foot thick, and it would be in a track, and the track would be right next to the entrance of the tomb, and it would roll right in front of it, and you would roll it away when you wanted to get into it. But it was very, very heavy, hard to roll, and that was the question. Who's going to roll the, the, the stone away from in front of the tomb for us? When they looked up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled away, for it was very large. Now, that would have been troubling. Why is the stone moved? And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, an angel there in the tomb. And they were alarmed. I mean, that's an understatement, don't you think? They would walk in and they don't see the body and they see this angel there. That would be alarming. They saw this man, young man, clothed, sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. And the angel said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But here's what I want you to do, the angel said. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee... There you will see him as he said to you. He already foretold this. He is going to come through with what he said. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb. For they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So here's what I want to show you today. That there's this little nuance of the story that I want you just to pick up. It's only found in the Gospel of Mark. It's not in Matthew, it's not in Luke, it's not in John. And here's the little nuance that I want you to see. It says this, the angel said, but go tell his disciples and Peter. None of the other Gospels have that. All of the other Gospels just say, go tell his disciples that he is going before you into Galilee. In fact, I thought, well, maybe it's just the version of the Bible that I'm reading. I want to look at some other translations and just see what the other ones say. The TLV version, which I use a lot, says this, but go tell his disciples and Peter. The ESV, the English Standard Version, says, but go tell his disciples and Peter. The NIV says, but go tell his disciples and Peter. The New Living Translation says, now go tell his disciples, including Peter. And the thought that I had that hit me with this was, why does he include Peter in this? Peter's just a disciple. He's not any better than the other disciples. Why didn't he just say, go tell the disciples? Why did he single out and say, and Peter? To understand that, you got to understand the backstory. Here's what the backstory is. You all know this story. You've heard it before. Even if you don't attend church regularly, you know this story. The backstory happens in Mark chapter 14. 
And here's what it says. This is the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed. This is the night before the crucifixion. All is happening. And Jesus warns and he says to the disciples, all of you disciples will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written... I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now that is a prophecy out of the book of Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 7. Jesus gives a statement that is a fulfillment of prophecy. When Jesus is, when he is arrested, when he is uh, being struck, then all of the sheep, the disciples, are going to flee. They don't know what to do. They're going to run around and not have any clue as to what to do. So Jesus gives the warning to the disciples. But after I've been raised... I will go before you to Galilee. Now Peter said to Jesus, who is God, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. You understand what Peter just said? He said to God, yeah, you may say this, but that's not going to happen. I will not ever go against you. You know, others may, others may fall, others may stumble. I never will. I've got it together. I'm, I'm secure, I'm knowledgeable, and I'm bold, and I will never let this happen. Well, Jesus said to Peter these words. He said, Peter, certainly, assuredly, I'm, I'm going to say to you something, Peter, that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. But Peter spoke more vehemently, meaning he spoke more more boldly. This will never happen. God, you don't know what you're talking about. He says, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. This is the backstory. You know the rest of the story because you've heard it before. The rest of the story goes this way. The end of Mark chapter 14 Now, as Peter was following Jesus at a distance after he had been arrested, it says that he was below in the courtyard as everything is happening to Jesus. One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and when she saw Peter warming himself by a fire, she looked at him and said, Hey, you also were with Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter denied it. Huh? You don't know what you're talking about. You're just a crazy girl. You have no idea what you're saying. He said, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. And a servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, hey, that guy is one of them. But again, Peter denied it. And a little later, those who stood by said again to Peter, Hey, surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and to swear, I do not know this man of who you speak. The second time the rooster crowed. And then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him just a few hours ago. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when Peter thought about it, he wept. In the Gospel of Luke, there's a little bit of, a, of an addition to the story, and that is this. Then in the Gospel of Luke, it says, at that moment when Peter denied him, the third time, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. 
Now I want you to think about this for just a second. Peter makes eye contact with Jesus, his best friend, who he loves with all of his heart, who he's committed three years of life to. He is his rabbi, his teacher, and Peter knows him as the son of God. He's seen everything he has done. He's seen the miracles that Peter has done. He knows who who. Peter knows who Jesus is. Peter saw the miracles, everything that Jesus, he knows who he is. His best friend, person he follows, person he loves, makes eye contact. Do you know, that is the last conversation that Peter would have had with Jesus up to the point of the cross. I would liken it to this. You ever had somebody in your life that it was a bad conversation and then they died? And you never had an opportunity to have another conversation. Maybe it was an unexpected death. They died. You didn't know it was going to happen, obviously. They didn't know it was going to happen. And the last words out of your mouth were painful. Maybe it was, I hate you. I never want to see you again. Maybe it was words of cursing rather than words of blessing. And it was the last conversation you had. And then they died. And now you carry that with you for the rest of your life. How would that be? Maybe some of you know that. Maybe that's exactly your experience. You had a painful conversation. You said things that you regret. They died, and you've never had an opportunity to ever say anything different. Well, that's exactly what happened to Peter. You know, I wonder, too, with Peter, if he would have remembered the words that Jesus had spoken earlier in his ministry that's recorded in Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, because Jesus had said, whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who's in heaven. And so how would Peter be feeling with all of this? Well, if I was in his shoes, I would feel unforgivable. I would feel unlovable. I would feel angry at myself. I would feel worthless as a person. I would probably struggle with depression. I I would probably have suicidal thinking. I would have anxiety. I would have all of this stuff that I would be dealing with as a result of that last conversation and my actions in that conversation. And so Peter, most likely feeling pain, feeling conviction, feeling turmoil, In that place, for the past three days, with Jesus dying, looking forward to life, what am I going to do? How am I going to go on? How am I going to survive? Then the resurrection happens, and the angel said, you go tell the disciples, but you specifically, you go tell Peter. Because Peter needs this message more than anybody else does. He needs to know that what he has done is not beyond repair. That what he has done is not beyond redemption. It is forgivable, though he doesn't feel like it. I would say with some certainty that there are at least some people in this room today that feel like what you have done is beyond forgiveness. The depth to which you have fallen is beyond repair. It is beyond hope. Feeling like I can't possibly be forgiven by God because I don't deserve it. And just like Peter, maybe today the message of the resurrection is specifically for you. And maybe today what God is saying is go tell all of the disciples, but you tell them in particular because they need it more than anybody else. I want to show you today four things that happened 
with the resurrection and why it's so powerful. For Peter and for us, the resurrection brings a few different things. The first thing, the resurrection brings for all of us, including Peter, was restoration. The opportunity to be restored. What is restoration? Well, picture it this way. It is falling down into the deepest pit and being rescued out of it. That's restoration. You were in the biggest pit of life. You had fallen into the deepest hole and God reaches down and pulls you out and he restores you. I I don't know how many people would want to admit this. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you love dumpster diving? Again, you don't have to show your hands. Uh, Dumpster diving... Maybe uh, you love going and, and finding treasures that other people have thrown away as trash. And you, maybe you do it in the middle of the night so that nobody will see you do these kind of things. But picture it this way, that you have a, maybe it's just some random stranger. They, they have a, maybe a piece of furniture. Maybe it's a table. Maybe it's a chair. Maybe it's a desk that is in their house. They look at it and think, what a piece of junk. I'm sick of this. I want something new. And so they take that table, that chair, that desk and they throw it into a dumpster. And you're driving by and you see legs sticking out of the dumpster. Table legs, not not people legs. He's sticking out of the dumpster. And so you're driving by and you think, huh, I wonder what that is. And so you get out and you look in the dumpster and you see, wow, that's a nice table. That's a nice chair. That's a nice desk. And you think, I'm going to take that. And you pull it out of the dumpster. And granted, it doesn't look the best. Maybe there's layers of paint on it. Maybe there's some parts to it that are broken. But you take it home and you strip off all of the layers of paint and you, and you, um, you, uh, you fix the things that are broken and you stain it and you sand it and you, you varnish it. And it's, after you get done working on it, it's just beautiful. What somebody thought was garbage, you saw as a treasure. What somebody saw as trash, you rescued because it was worth something. And maybe you sold it or maybe you kept it and maybe it's a valued piece of your home today. And it was something that you rescued. Now, imagine the analogy like this, that the world has thrown you in the dumpster. Or maybe you've climbed in the dumpster yourself because you feel like that's all I ever deserved. And you're in the dumpster And the world's thrown you in the dumpster. And you've climbed in the dumpster. And God comes along and says, what is this treasure doing in the dumpster? And he reaches down and he pulls you out and he restores you. See, that's what the resurrection does. That's what happened in the life of Peter. Peter had hit rock bottom. He was shattered where, through this event. And God reached down, rescued him, and restored him. Because you are worthwhile to me, Peter. And I don't want to leave you where you were. You're not garbage. I want to restore you because you're a treasure. And that's what the resurrection accomplishes. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead accomplishes our restoration. The grave could not hold him. And he is able to reach down and rescue you as well. Second thing that the resurrection does is it also brings reconciliation. Well, what is reconciliation? Well, reconciliation is not just restoration. It is restoring and reconciling the relationship. 
So again, picture it this way. You have people in your life that have wounded you. You knew you needed to forgive them, and you did. You were obedient. You forgave them, but the relationship was never reconciled. There's no closeness. I can't really relate to this person. I don't really want to be around this person. I don't really like this person. I have forgiven them, but that doesn't mean I'm going to do stuff with them. Reconciliation is now our relationship is going to be reconciled. We're going to bring, be brought back into right standing in our relationship. It's not just that I have been restored or not just that I have forgiven, but now I can actually stand to be around them. You may have people in your life like that, that you've forgiven, but you don't like to run into them because it's very uncomfortable when you do. You see them at the grocery store, so you quickly go down the other aisle, so you don't have to walk by them and have a conversation. Or if you do, it's very short and to the point, that's about it. I can't, I don't want to be around you. Reconciliation is, I can be around you now, and we can talk, and it's no longer uncomfortable. It's no longer awkward, our relationship, because we've been reconciled. And so God says, look, I'm going to restore you and I will reconcile with you. In fact, in the book of Psalms, it says this in verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions. So God doesn't look at you the same. Your relationship is, is reconciled. So that's the second thing that happens through the resurrection. We are restored and we are reconciled to God. And then the third thing is we then find rest. We find rest. Now, what does rest mean? Well, rest means that you can quit striving and trying so hard. You can just sit and receive. Pastor Grant and I were talking this morning. Sorry to put you on the spot, but not really. I'm going to anyway. We were talking this morning, and we were talking about his background. And many of you know his background. He, was, he grew up in a Mormon family. And he got saved. He, got, he understood salvation and a relationship with Jesus uh, about 20 years ago now. It's, it's where that changed for him. And we were talking about his family, and he's, got, he, he's one of 10 siblings. And in his family, most, if not all of them, are still in the Mormon cult. It is a cult. The Mormons believe something that is false to the Bible. They do not, in fact, Paul says in Galatians, even if I or an angel from heaven should preach to you a message different from what I have told you, let them be accursed. Well, that's exactly what they believe. It's an angel that came out of heaven that gave them a completely different message of the Bible. Regardless, we were talking this morning about, well, how, how are people saved in this Mormon religion? And the answer to that is you're only saved if you do all of the ordinances if you keep doing the right things and you have to hope that by the time you die, you have done enough. Because if you have it, you're not. But if you have, you can be saved. Well, that's not unique because that's every man-made religion that is out there today. If you do enough, if you complete the tasks, do the checklist, have all of the steps done, then you'll be saved. But if you don't have them done, your hope is gone. I want you to know that that's not the Bible. It's not what God says. God says this, if you believe in the Son, if you confess his name, you will have life everlasting. You can then rest. 
You don't have to work. You don't have to strive. Now, do we want to be better? Yeah. Do we want to follow God and be holy? Yes. Do we want to strive to be more Christ-like in our lives? Yes, we do. But you don't do it in order to be saved. You're saved by trusting in Jesus. That's it. And the resurrection gives you rest. You know how good it is just to feel like, man, I can just rest. I can just sit and I can receive from God and I can know I'm his child and I can know I'm loved by the King of Kings, the Almighty God, the creator of the universe. I can receive it. That's resting in him. And for many of us, we've got to stop striving and start resting in the knowledge of who Jesus is. So the resurrection brings restoration. He's pulled me out of the dumpster. It brings reconciliation. Now I'm, my relationship is good with God. And now I can rest. I can't earn it. I don't want to try to earn it. I'm just going to trust in him and receive what he has. Finally, it brings to us reward. You know what the reward is? Life everlasting. If you trust in him, put your hope in him, he has promised that your life will be with him forever. Where he goes, there we, there we may also be. He will come back for his own. When you die, if you die, before he returns, you will go to be with him if you've trusted in him. There is no other name under heaven by which mankind can be saved other than the name of Jesus. And so I put my faith, my trust in him. I call upon his name. I confess my sins to him. Jesus, I need you. And he comes into my life and he restores me and he reconciles me and he gives me rest. And he says, you will have that reward. You'll be with me forever. And that is the good news of the resurrection. So what does it say of Peter? The angel specifically said, go tell the disciples but I want you to specifically tell Peter because I don't want him to feel unlovable. I don't want him to feel worthless. I don't want him to feel like his sin is unpardonable. I don't want him to end on a bad note. I want him to know that I'm alive and that I am going to restore and reconcile and give him rest and give him a reward. Now, put your name in the name of Peter. Maybe that message then is specifically for you. Go tell everyone, but specifically you tell Michelle. Specifically you tell Sarah. You tell Jonathan. Thank you guys for sitting on the front row, by the way. You tell them. You tell them that this message is for them. Put your name in the blank. Go tell the disciples, but tell them because they need to know that they can't sink so deep that God is not bigger still. That I want to restore them and I want to reconcile them and I want to give them rest and give them a reward. Now, how does all of that happen? Well, it happens when you make the decision to say, Jesus, please come into my life. I need a relationship with you. It's not about a church. It's not about an organization. It's not about a to-do list and a checklist. It's about you and God in your own heart. God, I'm going to call out upon you, and I need you to come into my life because I need to be saved. I'm sorry for what I have done. I'm sorry for the mistakes that I have made, the sins that I have committed. Jesus, please restore me. Please reconcile. Please help me to rest in that and to look forward to eternity with you, the reward of heaven. Would you pray with me as we close? And then we're going to have the band come up and close us with one last song. Father, be with us 
help us, Lord, to understand this truth and this message that you are a God through the resurrection that has restored us, that has reconciled us, that has given us the opportunity to rest and promise that we would have the reward of eternity with you. Father, I pray that you would speak to that one person in here today that needs this the most desperately because they entered into this room today feeling like they were hopeless, that no one would ever love them, that they don't even know why they're here. Maybe they wrestle with feeling so worthless and so down upon themselves, and today they need to know the truth that the resurrection is specifically for them, that you have come for them No longer are they garbage in the dumpster of life, but you have pulled them out and set them free. Thank you that we can celebrate on this Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, the truth of your resurrection. We thank you, Lord. We love you. Be with us as we leave. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for checking out that message from Journey Church. We pray that it inspired you to trust the Lord, to treasure people, and to transform our world with the saving gospel message of Jesus Christ. If God is leading you to give to this ministry, be sure to head over to journeychurchgillette.com and hit the give icon in the bottom right-hand corner. Your generous contributions allow us to continue making content like this week after week. So thank you for your generosity so that we can keep spreading the message of Jesus Christ all over the internet. Hey, God bless you guys, and thanks for listening to this message.